Rebuilding a Life for God. This is part two. I got a long text, so follow along. Nehemiah chapter two, and I want to read 20 verses. So you'll kind of get a feel for the story and what's going on. Follow along as I read. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. That's an important verse. And the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And I was very much afraid. Artaxerxes is not a godly man at all. I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the gaper of the king's, keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. And then I arose in the night, had a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. This is at night. I went out by night by the valley gate, through the dragon gate, and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. All the rubble, all the junk. Fifteen. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were there to do the work. And then I said to them, You see the trouble we are, out, we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, 
what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. We're looking at this group of Jewish people who have been brought back to Jerusalem. It didn't start with Nehemiah. We looked at this last Sunday night under Ezra and Zerubbabel. They had gone back. By and large, much of the temple had been rebuilt, not all of it. And what had not been completed were the walls all around the city, which left the place vulnerable to future attacks so that all the work done on the temple could be for nothing. Here are people finally brought back out of bondage. They were under divine judgment because of their idolatry, predominantly idolatry and unfaithfulness. God had been gracious. Last week we saw how prophet Isaiah mentioned Cyrus, specifically by name, this godless king who would let them go and bring deliverance and let them back into their land. And so the work of restoration had begun in Jerusalem. And some of the walls of the temple have been reconstructed by earlier groups. It's possible that some sacrifices were already once again being offered to Jehovah. But the fact that the work had begun didn't mean there still wasn't much to do. God had delivered them. God had brought them back. And now they had to rebuild like that. It's one thing to be brought back, one thing to be miraculously delivered. It's another thing to rebuild the life and keep it going in that direction. We've been rescued. We've been brought back to God through Christ. And there's a reconstruction project going on in all of our lives until Jesus comes again. This is the way God always works. Redemption does not preclude reconstruction. Our wills, certainly, our wills were never enough to bring us back. But once you are back, your wills are involved in the reconstruction process of the life. Rebuilding a life for God. God's grace follows those who obey certain principles. God did love these people. He had brought deliverance. They were objects of his care and restoring. But that didn't mean that God still didn't want to do a work in their lives, or that he was going to wave a magic wand and the walls would be up and the place would be restored and functioning back to normal. He wanted them, step by step, under different leaders, to learn to rebuild what had been broken under his care and on his terms. They had brought this rubble In a very literal sense, they had brought this rubble on themselves and they'd do it again if there wasn't the rebuilding and the walls didn't go back up. Security, protection. We are a redeemed people who have been brought back in Christ, but we live in this fallen world and every one of us, every one of us in this room, whether we talk about it or think about it or even dwell on it, we have parts of our hearts and lives where there's reconstruction going on. Attitudes need to be reformed. Affections need to be reframed. Disciplines need to be constantly renewed and re-engaged to keep them alive and full of the life of the Spirit. 
some corner of circumstance where things don't just automatically come together. I'm, I wonder how many people in our Pentecostal traditions would come to a prayer room or an altar over and over again confessing the same sins, not seeing the process of how something gets rebuilt. So this should do for us what it did for Nehemiah. It should drive us not to despair, but to fresh prayer and dependence on God. The scope for rebuilding their lives while under Babylonian captivity was very limited. But they've been released. They've been brought back. They've been redeemed. They've been delivered. And that was the beginning, the beginning of a rebuilding project in the life. And that's where we are. It's important to see our lives the way God sees them. And so several things begin to form. If you remember last Sunday night, several things start to gel in Nehemiah's soul as he just kind of percolates in God's presence. Do you remember for how long? We, it talked about it in the text, five months. He doesn't do anything. He's just mourning <laughs> over his homeland and the state of affairs. He hasn't talked to anybody. He's not doing anything. It, it takes quite a while to get God's viewpoint on a situation. There he is, five months. Five months. First, he sees the terrible result of the people's sin. Second, he begins to hunger for a purity of worship, restoration with God, the temple restored, the walls rebuilt. And then third... He comes to a point after the five months where there's an opportunity and he sees, okay, here's my involvement. That's what we're going to be studying tonight for just a little bit. The need for his involvement. So point number one in your notes, knowing when the time is right for action. I love these first three verses because it looks like there's nothing going on and there's a lot going on. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Here's the important sentence. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. So he's not going in going, oh, man, my, my people, everything's ruined. Not that. Puts a smile on his face as best he can, takes the wine to the king. But, two, the king said to me, your face. Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And I was very much afraid. Here's, here's, here's something from the king, this godless king, that might be an opportunity. I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Probably difficult for us to imagine how hard it must have been for Nehemiah just to kind of bide his time for five months. He hadn't said a thing about what was burning on his heart, never said anything to the king. And then if you have the old King James, I don't use the old King James for study very much, but if you have the old King James, I love the way chapter two begins with those five little words. The old King James simply says, and it, and it came to pass. Like, it, it just, it looked like it just happened. That's what that means, eh? It just, and it came to pass. 
That's the way it works. That's the way it worked for Nehemiah. You pray, you watch, you hang in there, you try and serve faithfully, you keep teaching that class, leading that study, ushering, greeting. Something's on your heart. You've been carrying it for a long time. Nobody else in the church knows. You pray, you watch, you serve, and you wait. And it doesn't look like there's anything dramatic happening. You see days go by, you see the days turn into weeks, you see weeks turn into months, and all the while you continue to pray, serve faithfully as you can, wait, seek God, and it's very easy in stages like that. It's very easy to assume, I don't, I don't think this is working. What have you carried of a need you've brought, thought about, and it's been months and months? What's, what's happening? Sometimes like Nehemiah, you feel like you're just kind of mourning in God's presence, trying to keep a brave face, trying to do your best for the Lord, but not feeling very much. And then, and then, one day, you didn't do anything different, and it came to pass. And there's this tiny little crack in the door. And if you haven't experienced yet, you will. There's this tiny little crack in the door. Circumstances just start to loosen a tiny bit. You aren't doing anything different. You weren't praying any harder. You weren't being any holier. You don't feel like you were doing anything all that significant or all that different. Something just in God's timing, something, and it came to pass. There's a lot to learn from Nehemiah here. He really does two things really well. He, he prays for a long time, and he watches. He intercedes, and he thinks. It's a wonderful combination. Wonderful combination that can be very rare in the body of Christ. He's both anointed and he's wise spiritually minded and alert for an opportunity, careful, watching what's going on. Nehemiah knows he can do the right thing. He can do it at the wrong time. That's why it says, the king says, what's going on? And, and the first thing it says is, Nehemiah, I was afraid. I, I, here, I want to get this right. It's one opportunity here that God has brought about. And so it says he was, he was afraid. He knows he can wait too long. Miss an opportunity. He knows he can blow it by rushing ahead too fast and not having Artaxerxes on his side. He knows he's on thin ice. Everything hinges on Artaxerxes, and Artaxerxes is not a godly man. We're witnessing quite a thing here if we stop and think about it. It's quite a thing to keep trusting God when you see nothing but your own smallness before an ungodly king and an ungodly system. What's one person? in this fallen world. That's why, even in his praying, Nehemiah's been careful and thorough. He, he knew 
He knew a lot hinged on the king, on Artaxerxes. He knew this would be a difficult issue. And he had, we looked at it last week, prayed specifically about this situation. It's in chapter 1, verse 11. I didn't want to repeat too much of last Sunday night, but we read this. 111. O Lord, he's doing this for five months. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today and grant mercy here. In the sight of this man, Artaxerxes. That's what he's praying about. He knows there's, there's the block in the road. There's the authority. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. Okay, now here's, here's the, the big question. How do you measure the importance of one person's prayer. Just Nehemiah. Just Nehemiah for now. Lord, grant success in the sight of this man. Generations later, there will be people worshiping in that temple Because Nehemiah said, Lord, grant grant me favor in the sight of this man. Kids will play and they'll be in a walled city, safe from danger. Because one man said, Lord, just I'm watching. Give me favor with this man. And nobody's going to dream that it was all the result of Nehemiah and his praying that his conversation with the king would go well and be fruitful. And the lesson I need to take home, probably you do too, not all rebuilding is spectacular. Not all the rebuilding is obvious. And it's almost never immediate. But over time, over time, it all finds its place in God's plan, and it came to pass. You think, about, you think about the little things we do that don't seem to have incredible significance at the moment. Devotions. You know that morning time with Jesus that's always under attack by the enemy? Morning attack. And it, you read your four chapters like you were supposed to do, and, and it wasn't electrifying. You didn't feel all that different. In fact, you can go three mornings and not do it, and you won't feel that different that you missed anything. But you did. Going to church regularly. You don't walk out of here every time thinking, holy cow, I'm just a totally different human being now for the rest of my life. But bit by bit, the rebuilding is going on. The reconstruction's going on. It rarely looks spectacular, and it rarely looks immediate, and it rarely feels electrifying. Lord, grant me favor in the sight of this king, and everything's going to be different. Everything's going to be different. That's the way the rebuilding works. One morning, something special happens. It didn't seem like a big deal at the time, 
Nehemiah always went before the king. That was his job every morning. The only thing different about this one day was that the king took some time for chit-chat with the cupbearer, and it came to pass. You've been looking a little down lately, Nehemiah. How's it going? That's what he's saying. And there it was. There it was. Five months. <laughs> Waiting on God. Faithfully doing what he's supposed to do. Just a simple observation and a question. Nothing of weight or importance that that brief moment was significant. It wasn't obvious. Except, except to God in God's timing and maybe to prayerful Nehemiah. Here was that little question that changed the history of a nation. And because his heart, his heart had been tuned to God in prayer for five months, Nehemiah was discerning enough to see the opportunity. Nehemiah was looking for God to be at work. Okay, there's just one other thing I want to talk about tonight. Point number two. I think this gives some framework to understanding that phrase from Paul about the importance of praying without ceasing. I love verses four and five. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? Look, what are you after here? Look at So... So I prayed to the God of heaven. This is right in the middle of the conversation with the king. Nehemiah, what are you after? Oh, God, help me here. Right? That's all. That's it. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. What a ridiculous request. He had no reason to think this was going to work, except... Nehemiah, how's it going? You look a little down. What is it you're after? And I prayed. One of the battles I face with my daily prayer life is the, and I have that time in the morning, but that accusation that comes into the back of my head saying, you know, during the day, whenever, that prayer was just, too short and casual to really count, Don. A real man of God would have been on his face for three days. And that was just a couple of sentences. What on earth makes you think God's going to take you seriously? And look at this story. Look at this story. Between the king's question and Nehemiah's answer, okay? In, in, in the space of that conversation that we read, what, 12 seconds? So in the space between the king's question and Nehemiah's answer, Nehemiah puts a prayer. He's been praying for five months. Now he fires off a sentence. And I think it's a beautiful thing to see a life so soaked in seasons of focused prayer that it's just become natural when little things come up during the day. Oh, God, help me here. 
Jesus, keep me careful here. Jesus, watch over my family doing this. Keep them safe while they're going there. I think that's exactly what Paul meant when he talked about praying always and praying without ceasing. He didn't mean you don't do anything but pray. But never ever quench and never let the devil quench the impulse in specific situations. Let all the daily circumstances of life be fuel for your prayers. Go to God for grace when in your time of need. It's not just when you're guilty of big sins. Grace for times of pressure. Grace for times of confusion. Grace for moments of decision. Keep praying throughout the day. And uh, don't quit every time the devil tells you. Don't quit every time the devil tells you. Next week, we're going to look more. Next Sunday night, about the way Nehemiah plans and the way he works. But I love that part tonight about how he's, he's praying, he's serving faithfully, watching for what comes to pass, and then he's alert enough to see the opportunity, and he brings that prayer. And a nation has changed. More goes on with short prayers than you think as long as they're the fruit of a life built around devotion and faithfulness to God. 